Hello and welcome everybody wherever you are in the world. My name is Paul Ryan, I'm founder of PrescriptionRevision.com and I'm a GP and pharmacist based here in Ireland. I'm passionate about clinical pharmacology and therapeutics and really enjoy making the latest international guidance relevant to those of us at the coalface of primary care. Today I'm going to talk about the management of type 2 diabetes in primary care. This is going to be one of a number of different podcasts I'm going to dedicate to type 2 diabetes as it is such a big topic. Today's podcast will be broken down into five different parts where I will discuss the definition of diabetes, then I'm going to talk about how it's diagnosed, then at what HbA1c does treatment need to be started, then why is it, I will discuss why metformin is the first line treatment for type 2 diabetes and the final part then is the side effects of metformin. So to start I will discuss the definition of diabetes mellitus. So diabetes mellitus is a metabolic disorder characterized by hyperglycemia resulting from defects in insulin secretion or insulin action or both. Diabetes comes from the Greek word meaning siphon and this is because the patient produces a lot more urine due to the fact that glucose is present within the urine. Mellitus means sweet and that's because if you were to taste the urine it tastes sweet because it contains glucose. This is compared to diabetes insipidus where if you were to taste the urine um, from a patient with diabetes insipidus it tastes more insipid. There are a number of different complications with diabetes, namely microvascular and macrovascular complications. There are a number of different mechanisms in which these can occur, but I will discuss one main mechanism which leads to both the microvascular and the macrovascular complications. We know that the macrovascular complications include ischemic heart disease, peripheral vascular disease and cerebrovascular disease. The microvascular disease, uh, the microvascular uh, complications include neuropathy, nephropathy, and retinopathy. So, as there are higher blood glucose levels in people who have di- diabetes, there is an increase in uptake of this glucose into endothelial cells lining lining the capillaries. Now, it is important to remember this uptake of glucose is independent of insulin. So this glucose combines with proteins within the patient's endothelial cells to form glycoproteins. This thickens the basement membrane, causing a decrease in the blood flow to the blood vessels themselves. So, for example, one of the microvascular complications of diabetes is neuropathy, where the small blood vessels that supply the nerves become thickened, resulting in a decrease in blood flow to these nerves. The nerves that are affected tend to be in the periphery, um, so legs and hands, so the neuropathy has a glove and stocking distribution. So the patient will experience pain, numbness and paresthesia in the legs and hands. The next microvascular complication is retinopathy. So thickening of the basement membrane leads to leakiness of the blood vessels of the retina. The final microvascular complication is nephropathy, 
where the capillaries within the glomerulus become more leaky, causing protein to be lost in the urine. So then for the next part um, of, uh, of this podcast, I'm going to talk about how type 2 diabetes mellitus is diagnosed. So if a patient is symptomatic and they have a random blood glucose of 11.1 or a fasting uh, blood glucose of 7 or a HbA1c of 48 millimoles per mole, then they have diabetes. If they are not symptomatic, a repeat test will be required two to three months later. So just to talk about the symptoms, there are three main symptoms. So symptoms include polyuria, as the patient passes more urine due to the presence of glucose in the urine. Because they pass more urine, they need to drink a lot more. So the second symptom is polydipsia. Their appetite also increases, so the third symptom is polyphagia. Weight loss is the fourth symptom, and they can also experience fatigue and blurred vision. An oral glucose tolerance test is used to diagnose diabetes and prediabetes. With prediabetes, the patient either has an impaired fasting glucose or an impaired glucose tolerance. An impaired fasting glucose reads between 5.6 and 6.9 millimoles per liter, and an impaired glucose tolerance, which is measured two hours after giving the patient 75 grams of glucose reads between 7.8 and 11 millimoles per liter. So just to recap there on how type 2 diabetes uh, is diagnosed, there are three main values to remember and there are three cardinal symptoms really. So um, the fasting glucose of 7, random uh, blood glucose of 11.1 or a HbA1c of 48. I remember um, uh, the, back when I was a child there was a 7-Eleven shop so it was open 7 days a week and it was open for 11 hours a day so that's how 7-Eleven I remember so fasting glucose of 7 and a random glucose of 11.1 the three cardinal symptoms polyuria, polydipsia and polyphagia although I know the weight, the fourth, the weight loss is the fourth symptom and they can also experience fatigue and blurred vision so if the patient does not have any of these symptoms, we need to repeat the test two to three months later, be it a HbA1c or a fasting a fasting glucose or an OGTT. With regards to the oral glucose tolerance test, you give the patient 75 grams of glucose, but before you give them the 75 grams of glucose, you do a fasting glucose level, and if that's between 5.6 and 6.9, it's an impaired fasting, and then you give them the 75 grams of glucose, and then two hours after, if, if it reads between 7.8 and 11 millimoles per liter, that's an impaired glucose tolerance. Now for the next part of this podcast, I'm going to discuss at what HbA1c does treatment need to be started. So I suppose before I talk about pharmacology, it's always important to talk about the non-pharmacological methods um, so the first step in healthcare is self-care. So to educate before medicate, uh, to get the patients out exercising more, um, both aerobic and resistance training. And I state that there's no side effects from exercise, unlike a lot of these medications we're, we're going to discuss, and to reduce salt, alcohol, and caffeine, um, and to lose weight. There was a recent study done in primary care um, in England and Scotland, and it, it was called a direct study. 
and patients were enrolled in, in an intensive weight loss program, including a low-calorie diet. And it demonstrated that some well-motivated patients can go into remission of their type 2 diabetes and actually end up discontinuing their hyperglycemics if they can lose enough weight, which is really, which is a really, really great thing. So if the patient has a HbA1c between 48 and 58, there are two main options. One is to give diet and exercise advice and recheck, you know, in, in three months or so. If the HbA1c is still above 48, they need to be put on metformin. The second option is to initiate initiate metformin at the initial diagnosis. Now, both NICE, the current NICE guideline and SIGN guidelines uh, advocate starting metformin, which is a very safe drug. It was introduced back in 1957 and is the basis for treatment of most people with type 2 diabetes. To differ from that, the Primary Care Diabetes Europe uh, guideline states that you can consider dual therapy at diagnosis, which will which has been shown to avoid therapeutic inertia. For the majority of people, yeah, we'll stick with the NICE and the sign guidance and to start with metformin monotherapy. So now for the next part is why is metformin the first line treatment for type 2 diabetes? Metformin is used first line in the treatment of diabetes because metformin has the greatest evidence base in reducing cardiovascular outcomes compared to any of the other agents. It was introduced in 1957 and it, it suppresses glucose production by the liver. So it suppresses gluconeogenesis. Genesis is the manufacturer. Uh, Genesis, we understand, is the manufacturer uh, of glucose. So that's gluco and then neo. So the manufacture of glucose from non-carbohydrate substances. So And it also enhances peripheral glucose uptake to muscle. It is weight neutral and for some patients it can cause weight loss. It is a minimal risk of hypoglycemia and it has the lowest incidence of failure in monotherapy compared to the other agents. Now finally, I'm going to talk about the side effects of metformin. So the main side effects associated with metformin are taste disturbance, vomiting, diarrhea, B12 deficiency and lactic acidosis. Metformin should be started at 500 mg once daily and after a week or so, increase to 500mg twice daily, and then up to 1g twice daily, rather than a TDS dose. There is no greater cardiovascular benefit if the dose is greater than 2g daily, but there are increased gastrointestinal side effects. If the patient has GI side effects of 500mg once daily, well then I just tell the patients to half the 500mg tablet, and that can be given in the morning, and then half the tablet at night. If they can't tolerate that, well, then metformin will have to be stopped. So just to talk about the dose with regard to um, EGF, low EGFRs. So if the EGFR hits 44 mils per minute, the dose of metformin should be reduced to 500 milligram BD. And that's as per the current summary of product characteristics on the medicines.ie or medicines.org.uk. And metformin should be discontinued if the EGFR hits 29 mils per minute. One of the main reasons why metformin should be discontinued if the EGFR hits 29 or below is the risk of lactic acidosis. Now, I mentioned previously that, um, gluco, uh, that glucophage or metformin 
inhibits gluconeogenesis and which is the manufacture of glucose from non-carbohydrate substances so one of the um one of the substrates is lactate uh, so which is uh, you know the, we get lactic acid at the back of our calves when we go running and uh, and, and that's what causes cramp and pain and that so if you're on a medication that stops the breakdown of lactate um, you are more at risk to end up lactic acidosis. So that's what led to the removal of metformin's predecessor, fenformin, from the market. Now, although metformin is a very safe medication and should be used first line as for all of the guidelines uh, for the, in the management of type 2 diabetes, in patients that have a, an EGFR of, uh, less than tw- of less than 30, so 29 mils per minute or below, metformin uh, should be should be discontinued one another point to make is that if a person has gastroenteritis we say so they're very dehydrated that can also increase the risk of um, uh, lactic acidosis so the pa- so metformin should be discontinued or should be held while the patient um, is not producing enough enough urine if they're dehydrated. Um, so other medications that should be held during intercurrent illness or dehydration uh, include diuretics, so we say such as your frusamide or your burenex, uh, ACE inhibitors, ARBs, NSAIDs, nitrofurantoin, and SGLT2s, sodium glucose co-transport uh, inhibitors. Finally, lithium. Lithium is uh, just that one to be held as well. So that brings me to the end of today's podcast. I hope you found it useful and I'm looking forward to delivering my next podcast. 